Hello, and welcome to Making the Rounds, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Today's episode is part of our health IT series from the AMA MSS Committee on Health Information Technology. My name is Shivani Putnagar, and I am a medical student at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I'll be your host for today. We are delighted to introduce Dr. Eric Quaxlis, who is a leader in health informatics research and development, and the current Chief Science and Digital Officer at the Duke Clinical Research Institute. Welcome, Dr. Praxlis. To start us off, um, for any listeners out there who aren't familiar with your work yet, could you give us an overview of what your involvement within health IT has been? Sure, yeah. I started off as an engineer before I went ahead and, and got into science, and I've basically been working on technology and medicine since about 1985, when after one year of college, I got an internship at a local hospital west of Boston, and I actually put in the first pulse oximeters that summer. They didn't exist before that. It was all arterial blood gases and all the things that goes with that on the anesthesia stations. Since then, I've spent almost 20 years in in biopharma, several years at the FDA. I helped uh, start the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School, and now I'm at Duke. So I'm I'm kind of someone who does all things uh, technology, but my specialty has to do with kind of patient safety and patient protection. Um, For example, I spent uh, several uh, trips during 2014-2015, Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone, developing one of the first EHRs that had ever been deployed in a, in a hot zone, uh, as an example of the type of thing I'm interested in. Wow, that's definitely a very exciting resume. Um, and what are some current projects that you're working on? Uh, current, currently uh, at Duke, I'm really trying to work on figuring out and delivering the promise of digitization of clinical trials. You know, to me, it's never about the technology. You know, to me, it's about equity. It's about people being able to be in trials regardless of where they live. It's about people being able to trials regardless of the type of insurance they have, (laughs) whether they, you know, it's about people being in trials regardless if they've got to get to soccer practice later that day and they still got to get their chemo done. So I, I do think that digitization brings a promise of pushing clinical trials into the populations a lot the way care is delivered. You know, we have this somewhat artificial situation in the U.S. and that the FDA regulates the tools that doctors use, but, does, but doesn't regulate health. And so we do have this big gap between biomedical product development and medical practice. Yeah. I'm sure those patients um, are really glad to have you in their corner and fighting for them to be eligible for these types of trials that you were talking about. Um, you've had almost two decades of experience in this field across multiple roles, as you illustrated earlier. Um, what do you feel like is the impact of your work? And um, if you don't mind sharing, are there any challenges that you've experienced along the way? Sure. You know, I think the impact of my work has been enabling people to think big. Back in 2007, when I was at Johnson & Johnson, um, at the time, it was clinical genomics almost wasn't a th- really a thing yet. It was, it was taking hold in rare diseases. It was taking hold in kind of niche me- medical centers with really bright geneticists and clinicians, but it wasn't impactful everywhere. And so I designed a new system, a system called Transmart that really was the first multidimensional clinical omics data warehouse. And then we gave it away. We open sourced it. And now it's being used at two to 300 institutions around the world to do biomedical research. So I, I always say the best thing I ever did, I gave away. And so that's probably my, my proudest impact. In fact, actually, the for the large NIH long COVID studies that were just funded, they actually selected that technology platform uh, to run that. And so, you know, for me, it's, it's about, you know, dreaming big, doing big, and then letting the impact follow the work. Um, and I know that sounds kind of, kind of cliched, 
but it, at this stage at 55 at this stage is kind of the only reason I'm working is because you know I, I get to do really cool things with great people yeah that's definitely a great motto to keep you uh, moving forward with this um, recently with the pandemic um, how do you feel like COVID has affected your work and the projects that you have well, I think I, I think it's first of all, I think it's been difficult for everybody, and I think we've all all struggled with work. It's it's harder to be an employee. It's harder to be a boss. It's harder to keep your projects on track, right? You know. That said, it has given a boost to health technologies, uh, right, wrong, or indifferent. Obviously, telehealth being the one that people talk about, um, that it's really pushed telehealth forward and expanded the horizons. But as a as somebody who specializes kind of in health security and health safety. I also realized that telehealth isn't a great option for people that are being hurt at home. It's not a great option for people that don't want everybody they live with necessarily knowing about their doctor's appointment. And so I think the digital divide has also come into stark relief. So I, you know, to me, everything is, there's a force and a counter force. There's a benefit and a risk. And I do think COVID has moved technologies ahead, but we have to be careful of what's getting left behind or what might be lost when that happens. I'm not exactly sure how to keep everybody safe in it. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because um, that's definitely not something that we think about when it comes to the convenience that we associate with telehealth. Um, now, you recently had a piece in the New England Journal of Medicine titled HIPAA and the Leak of De-Identified EHR Data. Mm-hmm. In that, you discuss how sharing this de-identified patient data has led to the growth of multi-billion dollar health data aggregation companies. Mm-hmm. Could you summarize what those companies are doing with this data? Well, they're, 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 it's really doing two things. Um, you know, if, if you look at the way the internet works, it's, it's, you know, it's, I always think it's a lot like the oceans. There's five currents that drive all the ocean currents, right? And uh, we used to learn about this technology from surfing the web, which was a thing when I was back in college, right? Um, but the forces on the web are not always good. And so one of the things I said, two of the largest forces on the web are the surveillance economy and the attention economy. And, Unfortunately, patient data is actually fueling both of those. Um, so if you look, if you trace clicks of apps and companies that are advertising their products on Facebook, and you actually look at what happens when people click on those and they follow them through, you realize that people are actually be go- ending up on all types of lists. Um, some lists that are simply trying to market you stuff, some lists that could be used by insurers or other people to make inaccurate judgments about you. And so, you know, we, we think of privacy, especially in medicine, people think of HIPAA and they think of this, well, if you take these 18 identifiers off, um, you've de-identified and it's like, well, my issue with that is what you're saying is that it's, then it's some data never has to be private. (laughs) And I don't know that that's true in medicine, right? I mean, privacy in medicine is built upon the ethical pillar of autonomy and self-determination. And I think more than anything, what people don't realize about this is when your information and viewing history and the things you click on and when all your internet stuff is is being used, um, what people are actually doing is selling themselves. They are the product, you know, (laughs) When, when people are getting paid for clicks. And so I think that it's one thing to educate patients about this. Another, it's another thing for healthcare institutions to be leaking this data into this, this entire thing. And, you know, I, I work with lots of patient groups and, you know, on one hand, you've got a, a breast cancer support group at Facebook that are, that are trying to support each other and through all the different parts of treatment. Then you realize that, you know, 
uh, mammar- uh, you know, uh, mastectomy scars and stuff like that are being scraped and used for pornography. It's not okay. You know, and these people should have a safe place to, to have that conversation, especially because it's probably somebody who's alone with nobody to talk to in their house that goes on Facebook one night, you know, and is look, look like like everybody looking for a support group. So, you know, I, I think that there are real harms in, in some of these practices of leaking people's data and putting people on more lists than they need to be on. And most of them aren't illegal. Wow. Thank you for explaining that. Um, it sounds like this is a very complicated issue that has a largely negative impact. Um, however, do you feel like this trend has any positive contributions or, or can it positively contribute to any developments within health IT moving forward? If I'm being honest, not so much. Um, you know, like I said, I've, I'm a big believer in open source and open data. I've built systems and I give them away. Um, you know, de-identified research, IRBs don't regulate it. So there's a lot of research going on. It's just, it's just kind of shoddy research. It's not, you know, even if it's ethically not bad, just methodologically, it's not good. And so I think, I think on one hand, it's easy to say more data is going to be a public good. Um, at the same time, we have well indoctrinated, educated, and entrenched ways to do that research today, <laughs> right? With with consent. I mean, so for example, I actually think there's really interesting things we should be doing with data that's consented. And I don't think we've pushed those envelopes yet, you know, of, of asking what we could do with people. You know, it's as simple as saying, you know, would you be interested in being part of this study? Can I share your data? If they click yes or no or whatever, opt out. But I, I, I do think there's a lot of stuff that can be done. And I think the folks that are really excited about what can be done with people's data when they don't know about it, um, usually, from my experience of advising a lot of these companies, they underestimate data science needs. They underestimate data alignment. They underestimate bias. They underestimate all the things that can go wrong. You know, I've literally had people see this great study come out in jam and say, why couldn't we have just done that retrospectively with an EHR? They don't understand blinding. They don't understand, you know. So I, I, you know, so is there a lot of stuff? Yes. The other thing is to remember, you know, there are ad tech capabilities out there that can go to a census block or a zip code and come up with 30, 40,000 elements on the people living in there from the way data is shared around. Your supermarket loyalty card, your over-the-counter buying at CVS, everything is shared, you know? And I don't know that we need to pour medical data into that if we could if we could help it, <laughs> you know? So, so big believer in data sharing, big believer in open research, all those things. I just think there are ethical ways to do it. And what I've observed in counseling and being asked to consult with these companies, frankly, is a lot of kind of willful ignorance where they they know they should probably get an IRB, but nobody's making them, so they're not gonna. You know, and to me, it's like, just get the IRB. <laughs> Look at some of those big kind of scandals. If they had just gone and gotten an IRB put together, they, maybe that was going to be a really interesting, important study. Why? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You know, why, 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 why just not do the right thing and, and be open about it? Because again, I, I actually want people's ideas to come forward. So I want them to do quality research. You know, what we saw with, with COVID, one of the things we saw was kind of an unprecedented initial period of retractions by major medical journals. And a lot of those had to do with aggregated data that, that, that hadn't been checked carefully enough about what it was and it was misaligned or something like that. Yeah, it sounds like why not just do the right thing uh, is an overly prevalent question and frustration that's shared 
across healthcare in many aspects, and it looks like health IT um, is not excluded from that. Um, so when it comes to finding solutions to these negative aspects of uh, this data leakage that we're talking about, is it really just as simple as getting uh, better consent and IRB approval? I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I actually think we need to evolve what we think privacy is. You know, uh, I don't know that, you know, consent works for some things. It doesn't make a lot of sense in other contexts. You know, I am a big fan of GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And people talk about that sometimes like it's a privacy act. It's actually not. It's a non-discrimination act. It doesn't say you have to keep people's information a certain way. What it says is you can't deny them employment. I actually think we need more of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? We, we need more non-discrimination. We need more, we need actual penalties. You know, so one of the things we say in, in, the, um, in that piece is why not just, why have only one or two states made re-identification illegal? Why can't it be illegal? I mean, just, you know, I just, and then, you know, because the good people aren't going to do the wrong thing. You know, and it's, it's, but it's, it's the idea that they're just avoiding regulation at all costs, you know, and there's, there's been this musical chairs thing that's gone on, you know, so for example, one of the debates I watched play out was, well, our de-identification is flawless, so we shouldn't have to offer patients in our studies or anything like credit counseling or something, if anything goes bad. And I'm like, okay, so if it's flawless, why don't you just offer it? You'll never have to pay it. But we don't offer it because it's flawless. It's like, well, I got, you know, I, I walk out saying it must not be flawless. <laughs> because if it was really flawless, you you ha- you would have no liability at all of protect offering protections to subjects in this research. It's it's that type of thing, you know, that that always just makes it's just icky to me in this day and age. We should we kind of should be able to do better. Um, and you know, we saw it, right? I mean, one of the things we saw with COVID is that. And even if you take the misinformation away, which is a big thing in another part of my um, research, just the trust, you know, trust in, in medicine is down, trust in science is down. And, you know, people didn't answer the phones when it was an 800 number with a contact tracer calling. Yeah, pretty much people didn't answer the phone. And if I was going to, if I was a delivery driver for Walmart and a positive test meant I would get put on, you know, furlough without pay, I wouldn't have answered the phone either. We didn't put the type of wraparound things that we needed to to make those policies work so people could afford to be compliant with them. Um, so I, I just think people have to think that people are smarter <laughs> than we think they are. Like, it's funny. I was, I was in one meeting and uh, with a patient advocate I work with, who's a, a, a pillar in the Latina community, just really, but also just an amazing advocate. And I heard someone say, well, you know, your community wasn't really online. She's like, no, they were online. They weren't answering. <laughs> They're completely online. Don't make that assumption. <laughs> so, you know, I just think that there's always benefits and risks, right? I've seen fistfights break out in low and middle income countries when you're handing out $2 mosquito nets. Um, this person got two and this person didn't get any. Everything you do that's an intervention in health has an impact. We just have to understand the counterweight and we can do amazing research. Um, and still respect the autonomy of those subjects of that research. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. 
To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. What a complex issue. Um, I really hope that we see some progress in this area sometime soon. Um, On a similar note, um, on Twitter, you tackle some pretty huge topics like we just talked about within health IT, um, everything from ethical patient data use and privacy to health equity in research and artificial intelligence, um, in addition to telehealth and teleresearch. Does it ever get overwhelming to take on such expansive topics? Um, and what advice do you have for any medical students or other people early in their careers who are interested in tackling these issues alongside you? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it does. I mean, first of all, I'm old, so I've been around a long time and had a chance to work on lots of things. So that's, you know, that's one thing. Um, if you look at those topics, I tend to, they, the way that, the way that I interact with them is that there's some very common themes in them. And it's really that I have these underlying common themes that that make them interesting to me. I mean, I'm a polymath. I've always been in technology. I was doing, um, you know, molecular biology in the mid '90s before I ever went to work anywhere else. And so, you know, artificial intelligence is just new types of algorithms, machine learning, et cetera. Right. So all, all the, you know, telehealth is just a different way to deliver care, um, and it's an intersection with technology. One of the things it's really interesting. Ask people to do. Um, give you a definition of digital health. Um, and you, you know, you get all kinds of things. You get the, like the consulting world. I always say, look, it's, it's the interaction of medicine and the internet. And we should just respect that, <laughs> you know, because it could be all things medicine and the internet, you know, the good, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, we know bad stuff goes on online. Um, but we also know good stuff goes on online. Right. So by, 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 uh, by taking that approach to it, obviously, and so telehealth, would look a certain way with that. You know, most HIT, EHRs, things like that, all these things that are connected to the patient portals are connected to the internet. So so for me, it's the internet kind of connectivity is the underlying theme. Um, and also the, again, the, the kind of the patient security, privacy, but user experience thing, because people really want to use these tools. I mean, I think, I think we also have to listen to that. People, people know you know, a session on Facebook is like smoking three cigarettes and they still do it anyway. <laughs> they know it's not great for them, you know? Um, and so they're going to do it. So it's just a matter of how do you, how do you get the benefit out of that? I mean, I like the idea that patients with a new diagnosis can find people like themselves on Facebook. That's a great thing, but we just have to understand that there's a lot of bad actors and can we actually control that? The challenge with the internet is a lot of the bad acting is the business model. <laughs> That's the issue, right? Uh, you know, like Google ads or things like that. You look up something in Google and then you go check the weather the next day. And what do you know? There's the the luggage you looked at dancing in the margins. It's like, you're, you know, you're being watched, which is okay. People just have to understand it, you know? Yeah, these gaps in understanding are um, unfortunately prevalent. And that's something that we're hoping that this podcast series can help with as well. So thank you for taking the time to explain all of that. Um, now pivoting a little bit, you've had the opportunity to work for the government, private companies, and major academic centers. Um, what are the major differences? Like, how do uh, your experiences with these different employers compare? Uh, it's a great question. I think that government and academia are similar. Um, you know, and part of that is because a lot of academic is federally funded, <laughs> you know, so there, you know, so, so, so I, I think there's, a, I think businesses are wildly different 
you know, I've been in like, I went from being a senior vice president at Johnson and Johnson uh, to being the C the CIO and the first chief data scientist is the FDA. It didn't feel that different because, you know, FDA is 14,000 people and the part of J and J I was in was less than 10. So it's, it went from one large complex organization into another large complex organization, opposite missions in a lot of ways. Um, so there are things that are, are true about large and small environments. Um, academia again, because the way it's funded, the way the reward systems. So I would guess I would say, I guess a more thoughtful answer would be the things that make them similar or dissimilar have to do with how awards the reward systems are constructed in them. You know, um, it just in all the politics kind of follows from that follows from incentives, but I like all of it. I mean, I, you know, I've actually viewed all those things like they were rotations in a way, although I did spend 13 years at change. Um, but I grew so fast. I started off as a project manager and I was promoted to VP in six years and SVP in like eight years. And so I, you know, so I view myself as an alumni of J&J, um, having had such a great career there and, and worked there. But they're, but they're all different. But I do think that different people, I'm like, I like all of them and, and still get to contribute to all of them. But there's definitely people that would probably like one more than, you know, the large extroverted types, probably like that really big, complex corporate environment. Lots of people to keep track of, lots of travel, lots of FaceTime, um, you know, that small uh, the more introverted, really deep kind of thinker might like a startup a little bit better just because it's a it's a small team. Nobody cares what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm the only person doing it. You know, so I it's really interesting. Things like Myers-Briggs and those types of things are actually really important to 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 understand. So but I but at the end of the day, I think they all contribute. And I think that's the thing that I've gotten is that, you know, for me, the mission of the FDA was ridiculously motivating. Like every day, as crazy it was, I knew why I was there. You know, it just it was so. And sometimes in a large corporation, that that can get forgotten pretty easy. <laughs> you could be like Chandler with the Weenus and Friends. You know, he's he didn't even know what he, he couldn't describe his job. That's sometimes what corporate could feel like. I can't even describe my job. Um, but yeah, but there. I, I encourage it, working with a lot of clinicians coming out of Duke and, and out of Harvard, you know, people are experimenting more now with less traditional career paths than I think they probably did 30 years ago or so. And I think that's great. <laughs> you know, I think that it's it's a great chance for people to to kind of take because I, I do think that the barriers between the industries come down with the right type of cross pollination. It's just it, it really requires somebody that knows both sides to be able to lower a drawbridge, you know, on something and, and, and say it's okay. Uh, it, it's funny. I, I never went into cybersecurity or anything like that because I had an interest in it. I went into it because I wanted to give technology away for free and I wanted to understand the risks in doing that. So for me, it was totally selfish. I went into it because I, <laughs> there's certain things I wanted to do. So I became an expert at the reason everybody was told it was the reason everybody was going to tell me to stop. <laughs> So I became, so I, I built my expertise in that as a way to be able to give away a system that's now being used for free around the world, those types of things. Thank you. That was a really insightful reflection on everything that you've been involved in. Um, and I'm sure that this will really help anyone who's looking at building their career or exploring these different avenues um, to accomplish similar goals. Um in a similar vein, uh, what do you think health IT will look like in the next 10, 15 years, um, you know, especially as my generation of medical students will start entering the workforce? You know, I, I actually hope that health IT becomes more abish. 
you know, I, I, you know, it was, it was great developmentally, but I find few people that think the status quo with the, with the massive EHR companies is anything that anybody loves, you know, as far as the patients, as far as the clinicians, as far as the organizations. And I, I'd love to see more appropriate kind of point of care capabilities that actually enable clinician workflow um, and patient care, as opposed to just being good billing systems and, and other things that go on. So I actually think we should almost redo it, <laughs> but I don't think we'll get, I don't think we'll get 14 billion like we had with ARA uh, back at, you know, in the uh, American Recovery Act or Restoration Act, something like that, A-R-R-A, when you look it up. Um, but I do think we should be thinking that it's not an epic concern a world five years from now and that, you know, that the EHRs really do exist for clinicians and patients as opposed to, uh, you know, billing systems, which is what they were built to do. Yeah, I'm sure that's a change we'll all like to see someday. Um, let's just see how long it takes to get there. All right. As we're wrapping things up, um, do you have any social media handles or other channels where people can connect with you and follow your work? I mean, I always do Twitter and I do LinkedIn. Um, and everything else I just do privately if I do it. But yeah, those are the two that where people find me. Um, and I, and I really keep both of those for professional reasons, um, because I, I have people that worked with me 10 years ago that will want to reference and they'll find me on LinkedIn. And I think that's great because <laughs> I would want to help them. So I, you know, I don't mind, you know, that, you know, keeping that stuff open. I actually think that's a good thing. You know? Great. Well, everyone, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. And thank you for your time today, Dr. Braxless welcome. Thank you. This has been Making the Rounds, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can subscribe to Making the Rounds and other great AMA podcasts wherever you listen to yours, or you can visit ama-assn.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening.